Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Hub Roundtable. Sean Spear, editor-at-large, joins me. Stuart Thompson is off on a deserved summer break. Well, Sean, let's uh, jump off and begin the show on housing. It was a big issue this week out of the Liberal Cabinet Retreat in Charlottetown. The Hub spent a lot of time. I think we had some fun with it. I got to write a piece for a change. <laughs> uh, you guys actually let me out of my... Uh, my steel cage and put a pen in my hand. <laughs> it's a rare, rare privilege indeed as the hub's executive director to be allowed to scribble uh, zeros and ones on our beautiful pages. But um, what happened here? Let's talk about the big picture and then get into some of the details. A lot of front end loading here. Like there's all kinds of messaging going into this cabinet retreat that, you know, this is Canada's national crisis. Um, cabinet's meeting to take up this issue and to be charitable what we get in the final press conference from the prime minister is kind of a nothing burger yeah um let me set it up a bit for those uh, listeners who don't spend their time thinking about the way that cabinet functions in ottawa uh, as as you know rudyard cabinets meet you know virtually every week uh when the house is sitting um, but cabinet tends to be pretty transactional. It's dealing with uh, immediate issues in real time. Should we buy this plane or should we buy that plane? Um, should we fund that bridge or fund this bridge? You know, it it is not um, typically kind of heady, big picture stuff. But that's precisely what the summer cabinet retreat is for. Uh, each summer, and this doesn't this isn't unique to the Trudeau government. It goes back even to my time, at least in the Harper government. Uh, there would be a day long retreat focused on, on some bigger picture issues um, in advance of the the return of parliament. One um, change that the Trudeau government has made to the summer retreat, which for which it deserves credit, is it's not merely been an intramural conversation with elected officials and bureaucrats. They've brought in some external experts on and subject matter experts on the topics that they're focused on. And um, Mike Moffat, a renowned expert on housing, who was in the hub this week, kicking off our coverage on Monday, was one of those people briefing cabinet. Precisely. At the risk of sounding a bit self-congratulatory, we oh, had we, start, we started the week with Mike Moffat, an exclusive piece um, the day before, by all accounts, he appeared before the cabinet and provided his read and recommendations on what to do with the housing crisis. And we end this week today um, uh, with an interview uh, by Jeff Russ, uh, a hub reporter, uh, with Tim Richter, who's, who uh, similarly was part of the cabinet conversation, uh, bringing the point of view of, of homelessness uh, uh, to, to, to the table. So um, that's a long way of saying this was this was pre-positioned as a, an important meeting touching on big picture subjects involving er, er, area experts, um, and as you say, when it was all said and done, the government was not in a position 
um, to roll out any incremental policy. In effect, we were told after all of this prepositioning, after all of this attention paid over the course of three or four days in, in Charlottetown to, to the housing issue, we were told stay tuned. And, um, you know, we can get into what that tells us about the government um, and where it stands in kind of its lifespan. But I'll just say, uh, Roger, um, it's not going to help. I, I think there's growing, there's evidence that there's growing uh, view amongst the Canadian public uh, that governments in general and the federal government in particular is responsible for the housing crisis. And to tell Canadians, uh, stay tuned, it just seems to me um, is going to... Um, exacerbate um, that kind of political challenge mm -hmm. for the Trudeau government. One of the things uh, that I wrote about this week uh, struck me and get your thoughts on this is so much of the conversation is focused on supply. And I, and I get it, as you pointed out to me, there's a kind of crazy little stat for Ontario that we're every two years, we welcome a new population of the province, the size of Mississauga. And over that same two year period, we build one city, the size of Cornwall. Um, that ain't going to work. Um, <laughs> so I get, I get the supply argument, but what strikes me is this, this kind of, is it recitance, Sean? Is it just a policy blank spot when it comes to demand? Uh, why don't we have, as you would in any sensible kind of debate or conversation, think about the, the array of not only of tools and policies, but the environment within which those policies unfold, which is an environment of supply and demand. Why, why can't we walk and chew gum at the same time? Yeah. Um, I'd encourage listeners to check out uh, Roger's analysis on the topic. I thought it was excellent. And in particular, Roger, you make the point um, that immigration levels are not the weather. We have agency. We, you know, th this is the result, a function of choices. And what's really peculiar about it, Rudyard, is that you'll hear pundits and politicians, including the prime minister recently say, well, housing's not primarily a, a federal responsibility. Um, fair enough. You know, land use regulations, building codes and all the rest um, belong to uh, the prov provincial and municipal governments. But the federal government is, for all intents and purposes, solely responsible for immigration policy in this country. And so, so to say that the federal government has no role in housing excludes, you know, this important driver on, as you say, the demand side of the classic supply demand equation. For the first time in years, we finally are starting to see not just within the government, but I think increasingly in the um, kind of commentariat. Um, uh, growing concerns that we've we've kind of pumped the gas too hard, you know that a, a bit of immigration is a good thing, um, but a lot of immigration. Sean, we've taken from an, a historical average of around three hundred k immigrants plus refugees plus student visas, maybe push that up to three fifty if you want to be generous about the average of the last decade plus, to well over a million. That's a threefold increase against a backdrop of restrictive supply. Yes. I mean, this this is not, you know, tweaking a dial or nudging, you know, uh, a key factor that is driving land cost, which is probably the single biggest, you know, accelerant to housing prices and the affordability crisis. 
Yeah, well, well said. Um, the, the numbers across the board are pretty striking. Um, the, the government, as you say, is now focused on a piece of the puzzle. There seems to be an openness to um, constraining the growth of international students. But as you say, there's not, at least at this point, on, on the part of the government, a, a recognition that he, they need to look at um, the, the bigger question of our overall immigration uh, numbers and targets. But but I, I think it is interesting that you're seeing that in, in different places, from the left to the right. Um, and I think that's actually healthy. You know, I've said on this podcast plenty of times that um, Canada has achieved something uh, that, uh, special, which is relatively high levels of public support for relatively high levels of immigration. And I think that's a, uh, something that we ought to um, really celebrate and be proud of. Um, but then we got to protect the hell out of. Um, and I, my biggest concern of what we've seen in the past few years on the part of the Trudeau government, essentially letting it rip, um, is it puts that consensus at, at risk. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you're seeing everywhere, the Globe and Mail editorial page, uh, Rob Gillizo, a progressive economist at the University of Toronto, um, you know, voices at the McDonald laurier Institute and other kind of center-right think tanks, I think increasingly saying immigration is good. Um, but to come back to your article, we need to exercise some discretion here. And one gets a sense that for all intents and purposes, we've abandoned discretion when it comes yeah. to immigration policy for the past few years. It's good policy, you know, negligently, I would go that far, negligently implemented in the post-pandemic environment. I just don't understand. I don't understand the rationale. The other piece, I guess, on the demand side, though, which maybe I, I don't, people all of us resist because those of us that own houses have been the beneficiaries of it is the financialization of housing itself as an asset. And that when you go through the panoply of federal programs at the Canadian uh, Mortgage and Housing Corporation, at the you know, federal uh, consumer agency, at OSFI, the, you know, the regulator ostensibly who's you know, entrusted with ensuring the financial stability of our our banks and larger financial sector, all these organizations repetitively again and again, when presented with a choice, have not only erred, but pushed on the side of juicing demand by implementing regulatory and other changes that uh, lower borrowing costs that surge capital and credit formation within the real estate sector. Um, I, I just worry that we, Sean, are a country that is addicted to a real estate-based growth model, which is very attractive. It has all kinds of things that would recommend it. It, you know, it's it's geographically specific. You can't outsource it to China. You have to have workers here that are building condos that are doing the cabinetry, the plumbing, the uh, you know uh, electricians and on and on and on. So I get that it's very it's very located. it's uh, in some ways beneficial that it actually provides really good uh, blue collar uh, employment for parts of the Canadian economy and geography that have been the real beneficiaries of the real estate boom, Toronto, Vancouver mainly. but I don't know, Sean, I just, I think of our low productivity. I think of our now declining uh, per capita GDP. It's not hard to draw a line between over-indexing to one specific growth driver in the economy when that growth driver 
is inherently not very productive. Real estate just isn't, it isn't, isn't new capital stock. It's not new intellectual property. It doesn't drive long-term productivity gains. And I, I, I again, I don't know if the government's going to do anything because these things are so hot button with voters, things like the capital gains, lifetime exemption on your principal residence. You know, and that's just one, again, of a series of things. I get this. This stuff is the third rail of Canadian politics. But unless we start to allocate our precious capital in our society to other sectors of the economy that are inherently more productive because they do invest in capital stock, they do generate you know, novel uh, IP, I, I just don't think we're going to solve the productivity problem. Yeah, well said, Roger. Uh, you've been making this case now on this podcast and in the pages of The Hub for some time. Um, and it seems to me it is the piece of the puzzle that the political class is is reluctant to touch. I think for a couple of reasons. First is the one you raised, which is just, um, you know, homeownership rates in Canada are still north of 70%. So there's a lot of people uh, who are inside the tent of the current system and who are benefiting from the current system. And so there's reluctance to um, do anything that would provoke that group. Um, just, just in parentheses, Rudyard, you mentioned the the... Uh, non-taxation of capital gains on principal residents. This is not an insignificant um, item in the federal budget. Uh, this year alone, it's estimated to represent north of $10 billion in foregone revenue. That's bigger than a single percentage point of the GST. So this is this is serious money. Um, and I, you know, I don't know if we'll ever see anyone kind of put that on the table. You know, Sean, there's an equity issue there too. I just want to bring it up. One third of Canadians don't own houses, okay? And a lot of them, that's not because of choice, right? They are priced out of this market. So if you do not have the ability to access the lifetime capital gains exemption on the appreciation of your principal residence, at least for the last, if you've been around for the last 25 years in your adulthood, principal earning and investing uh, period of your life, you have foregone a major wealth event in many cases because no fault of your own. Yeah, that, that's right. There, there is clearly a, a kind of asymmetry in, um, in the benefit, particularly for older Canadians represented in the, the non-taxation uh, of capital gains on principal residents. And those like our producer Amal who are aspire to get into the market but are facing all of the headwinds we've been talking about. The second point, though, I just wanted to raise, because I think this may be underappreciated in some circles. You know, I've been in the prime minister's office and the Department of Finance um, thinking and talking about these issues over the years. And one of the reluctances, I think, sources of reluctance to deal with these issues is a sense that um, it's almost too big to fail. Like as soon as you start kind of twisting the dials, tightening things up, um, you're going to expose how kind of vulnerable the market is. You know, CMHC uh, is responsible for, you know, in some cases, Roger, insuring like 90% of the mortgages on the on the books of certain banks. Um, and so, you know, it's almost got to the point where policymakers have, have been so lax in terms of the rules and regulations around mortgages, all of these demand side incentives, et cetera. They're ultimately culpable for the situation we find ourselves in and they don't want to kind of expose their culpability um, by mm -hmm. tightening the screws. And so it just kind of goes on. And every government hopes that it's not the one that kind of oversees the ultimate yeah, where the music, where the music stops. And that would be my final point. You know, 
And again, the situation in China was extreme, but they did deploy very similar tactics that we have to goose real estate into a massive GDP multiplier. And let's understand that we've taken real estate from like five, six percent of GDP 25 years ago to, you know, some analysts would say upwards of 15% or more now, depending on, you know, what, how you slice it and dice it. And like the Chinese, we've used all kinds of tax incentives to individuals and, and corporations. We've transferred, in a sense, risk for off, you know, bank and uh, personal balance sheets onto the government balance sheet. And look where China has ended up. I think it's fascinating to see this contraction now of the Chinese economy coming out of COVID, which is mainly housing related. They are having a secular, maybe at best, downturn. It may be quite, it may be worse than a downturn because what high housing costs do over time is they lower family form formation. People simply can't form families. Families, when they come together, that is a big economic event. You create all kinds of economic activity around family formation, and simply debt loads get too high. Uh, and if when interest rate costs go up and you start bearing the brunt of the, the full debt servicing costs, uh, we'll see what happens with interest rates. But you know, there's a lot of talk now about higher for longer, these record government deficits requiring governments like Canada, the United States, and elsewhere to offer investors higher yields on their bonds, on their debt in order to attract uh, buyers in a what is not a seller's market anymore. So I put this all together and I just worry, Sean, that we're not China now, and I'm not saying that, but there's a, a risk here, again, putting all your economic eggs in one basket and not understanding the opportunity cost of that, both here and now in terms of productivity and more efficient allocations of capital that could genuinely expand national wealth, and then longer term, ending up in a kind of uh, Japan, maybe now China, secular growth trap um, that is triggered by uh, a real estate market that simply, at, as you say, at one point, the music stops. Yeah, you've just outlined the economic risks. Let me outline the socio-political ones. Um, which I, I don't think can be underestimated. Um, we'll run a piece tomorrow at the Hub, which I'll encourage listeners to check out by Jeremy Roberts, a, a former Ontario PC MPP, one of the youngest MPPs ever elected in Ontario's history, talking about what he's increasingly hearing from his friends in their late 20s and early 30s about the promise of Canada. Um, home ownership, you know, one can agree or disagree about whether the historic emphasis placed on home ownership was a good idea or bad idea. But it seems to me that's besides the point. It's been socialized as a key stepping stone in the maturation from one's youth to one's adulthood. And um, suddenly we're telling a generation or two of young Canadians that they need to forget everything they were told uh, 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 about that. And I think it's, you know, I wrote a piece a couple of Saturdays ago that I, in which I talked about what I called the quote, overeducated underachievers, it wasn't a pejorative comment about them. It was um, that increasingly we had an economy in the labor market and in, in the housing market um, that wasn't delivering for them the, the, the kind of promise of Canada. And I think the political risks associated with that 
in terms of pushing a generation either into apathy or worse into political radicalism uh, is something that our policymakers need to take seriously. And in that sense, um, the conclusion of this week's cabinet retreat with a message of stay tuned just missed the economic mark and it missed the political mark. Well, let's talk uh, some politics on the backside of the show. A new poll out. Uh, look, we never give a huge weight to one poll, but this might suggest, you know, a trend and a trend that is not the friend of this government. So let's have that analysis for you right after this break. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed, a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the, the big ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050. And we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. this uh, synthetic brew that uh, we're often subjected to. Uh, thanks, Amal Adder Guzman, our producer, for playing that. Should he stay or should he go, Sean? These abacus poll numbers, walk us through them. Pretty bleak uh, for the government. I, I was shocked. Yeah, two, two big uh, pieces. The, f- the first is a growing share of the Canadian public that actually think the prime minister himself is the source of the problem and that he needs to go. Um, you know, it seems to me that will weigh heavily on a caucus that's already, according to some media reports, feeling a little bruised and feeling a little down. Um, and um, and so, you know, we have, there's a sense that, that the problem is actually at the top, uh, which is something that we've been talking about in, in recent weeks. Um, it seems to me that is likely only to exacerbate those uh, sediments and tensions within the liberal ranks. The second number, though, is the more important one, it seems to me. And that is um, that the conservatives are increasingly in majority territory. One of the reasons I think that's important, Rudyard, is there has been a, a view, including one held by me, 
um, that because of the dynamics of our electoral system, because of the inefficiency of conservative support concentrated in Western Canada, um, because of the negatives of Peter Polyev, that there was going to be it was going to be hard for the conservatives to kind of push up their ceiling of support to get out of minority territory into majority one. And and the challenge with that, of course, is we have an NDP liberal parliamentary supply agreement. And so it seems quite plausible that if the conservatives fail to achieve a majority government, um, that they won't be able to get their hands on on the reins of power. This is the first poll, to my knowledge, um, that actually shows a path forward for the conservatives to to a majority. The liberals at 28 percent uh, and the conservatives almost at 40 percent way that that would manifest itself in a parliamentary seat count would actually put the conservatives in, in a majority. So. Um, you know, coming out of this retreat in you know, hopes of trying to, um, you know, kind of energize the government to end the week with a poll like this, holy smokes, I suspect that Prime Minister Tro is is glad that he's not having to look his caucus in the eye next week because Parliament isn't back. Because if he was, you know, I, I think that would be a pretty tough meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was surprised this abacus poll, this, you know, majority, you know, since saying the Prime Minister should not run again it's phrased a bit differently but i just i don't know i we've talked about this before you know governments defeat themselves um uh as much as the opposition might like to think it's about a bright new shiny thing they're putting in the window it's more often not that governments defeat themselves you know this government is long in the tooth and i think demonstrably this cabinet retreat would suggest somewhat out of ideas. And again, it's not, I really don't believe that's a partisan comment because I think this happens. It's simply, it's like the life cycle of (laughs) amoebas, governments, whatever it is, there's a natural rhythm to these things and governments exhaust themselves. Um, You've talked about this before, Sean, they, you know, governing is, um, is tough. And a lot of it is just a day to day grind. And it's hard to get your head up and get a view beyond the next immediate short-term crisis, uh, you know, or challenge that you're facing from wildfires in British Columbia this summer to, you know, um, a whole list of issues that constantly suck up time. And I think, again, have got them to a point where they're out of gas politically and they're out of gas kind of mentally. I just, uh, what, what would be the agenda? What would you, what would you, if you're recommending a reboot strategy, I mean, what would you put in the front window at this point? Yeah, I, th- I think it was Henry Kissinger who said um, that you spend down intellectual capital well in government. And I, I think that's right. This is a government that did come to office with some ambitious ideas, some really innovative policy ideas. The Canada Child Benefit is one of the more innovative policies we've seen in kind of modern Canadian policymaking. Um, but it's clear that it's spent down, it's increasingly spent down the capital. One proof point of that, Rudyard, and this, this again, it's not a partisan comment, it's, it, 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 it manifests itself in the Harper years, is when you start tweaking policies that your own government put in place, you know, that's a sign. If you're going <laughs> back to your own ideas, that's probably a sign that you've, you've hit yeah. your best before date. 
Um, it's like, oh, well, maybe we have to actually lower the number of foreign student visas because <laughs> it's swamping our rental housing markets in major cities. And it's clear that a lot of these, quote, schools, I'll put that those in air quotes, are really engaged in almost semi-fraudulent uh, behavior. Yeah, that the new housing minister is the old immigration minister is just a bit yeah. too on the nose, right? Um, but let me just raise one other point, which again, I, I hope provides some value for listeners. It sort of reflects my time in office, is that when you get into office, you're hungry and you're ambitious and you're not constrained by the by the the kind of risk aversion reflected in the government. And I should say, generally speaking, that risk aversion isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's about um, you know, most good ideas are bad. And so it's about kind of trying to protect against bad ideas, but it can also become a kind of constraint on common sense. And, um, you know, I have no doubt that what happened out of this cabinet retreat is that they probably did settle on some policies that they want to roll out in the coming weeks and months with respect to housing. But someone said, well, you know, we can't announce them uh, coming out of the retreat immediately because they still need to be subject to Treasury Board approval and all the rest. And you would have had ministers and political aides and others saying, yes, you're right. Of course, it needs to go through Treasury Board. When common sense, you know, you can ask my grandpa in Thunder Bay, if you say you're talking about housing at a cabinet retreat for a week, you got to come out with something, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it just seems to me that that is endemic of what happens when you just spend that much time in the Ottawa bubble. You kind of lose touch with um, the experiences and interests and needs of regular people when you get kind of consumed by bureaucracy and bureaucratic thinking. And I, I think the fact that they weren't in a position to announce even a direction coming out of this retreat is just a sign that they've they've been auto-washed, as mm -hmm. uh, Preston Manning used to say. <laughs> I, what I struggle with a bit, Sean, is just to try to see the the prime minister's uh, own kind of personal rationale for subjecting himself to another election that these polls would now suggest could be a high risk, possibly extinction event for his party. Um, why do that? And I want to go back to your experience in the Harper years, because at the end of that decision, Prime Minister Harper came to a similar fork in the road where he could have left, um, not have run, and instead ran and lost. Now, the prospects of the party were not as grim as they are for the Liberal Party right now. But I think of all the all the opportunities that this prime minister has. I mean, if he left Canadian politics at this moment and was successful in brokering a leadership transition to, you know, a viable candidate to replace him, he remains an incredibly popular progressive leader internationally. Uh, he has phenomenal uh, recognition uh, around the world. And people can say that's deserved or not. It is the, it's the reality. Um, so I just, I don't get the internal calculus. One clue, I was speaking with a senior liberal the last week and said, that they're feeling this is someone who has known the prime minister for a long time and closely is that he's quite isolated right now that uh, he doesn't have a lot of close friends you know genuine friends that he relies on for advice that he's 
his his time and his trust circle is really now bound up in this immediate set of paid political advisors who are PMO staff and hangers on within the party. Is it, Sean, a question that you know leaders may have one instinct, but there's also the people around them. And I would think if you're a staffer in PMO or Liberal Party HQ, yeah, another election's risky, but at least you got a job, right? At least, you know, the puck's still going down the ice. You haven't been pulled off and basically uh, thrown onto the dustbin of, you know, the lobbyist, uh, you know, industrial complex to kind of, you know, fight for scraps of influence in what would then be a, you know, a conservative-led government where your liberal connections have little, if any, value. Yeah, I think there's something to that. You know, there's a lot of people registered uh, in the government who are making the most money they've ever made in their lives. You know, they've taken out mortgages um, in recent years, and they don't know what's on the other side. Maybe, maybe they'll be just as as um, well compensated as they are now. Maybe they'll find jobs that are nearly as exciting and interesting. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, but I'm not sure that's the principal incentive. I think. I wouldn't underestimate the kind of power of the us versus them mentality that kind of takes shape in Ottawa. And that leads to a kind of tendency to circle the wagons and sort of protect your guy, so to speak. And so I I wouldn't be shocked at all if there is just tremendous loyalty to the prime minister in and around his closest, uh, in, in and around his closest circles. Um, the, the other thing I would say uh, is that here is that um, Pierre Polyev, I think, is part of that. Like, I think young progressives can convince themselves that Polyev is so bad, you know, and so uh, represents such risk to the government and or to the country, rather, um, that they need to stay in a kind of position to to fight him. And 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 that Justin Trudeau still represents the best um uh, the, the best candidate to put forward in that regard. The last point I make, and then I'll turn over to you, is I can't speak for the current prime minister, um, but I can speak, I think, for the previous one. I think Mr. Harper just really loved being prime minister. Um, I wouldn't underestimate that. And I don't mean he liked the fancy dinners and that sort of thing. He just thought at his core that he was uniquely placed to lead the country and make decisions on behalf of the country. And I think he really... And it was the best job he ever had, and he was good at it, and he liked doing it. And and I think that, as much as anything, actually colored his ultimate decision to stay, even knowing that it may it may have positioned the party worse off in the in the 2015 election. Yeah, I think you're right, Sean. I think maybe it all comes down to just really human things, right? Like it's it's what you like doing. It's what you think you're good at. Um so what gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, well, let's follow this. I, uh, you know, I, I predicted with our, our, you know, our hub new year uh, look aheads for 2023 that, you know, the, the prime minister would step down. I thought that was going to happen earlier this year and that we would have been in a, a liberal leadership transition that would have completed over the course of 2023. Maybe, Maybe I wasn't wrong. Maybe I was just early, Sean. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's right. I, I think the fact that the cabinet shuffle and the cabinet retreat 
have failed to stem the bleeding. Um, I, I think, I, you know, coming into the return of parliament, you're now going to be in front of your caucus week, you know, week on week. I, I think the if these numbers don't start to reverse themselves, I think the pressure on the prime minister will will mount. And I'll, I'll just make one final point here. Um, the onus, therefore, on the conservatives is to keep prosecuting the case against the government, um, keep fundraising like they're doing, um, and 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 keep nominating like they're doing. You know, this week, uh, or I guess last weekend, they nominated Jamil Giovanni, something of someone of a kind of friend of the hub, as their candidate in the riding of Durham. Um, you need to start to build a team um, behind Peter Polyev that looks like a genuine government in waiting, and I think that mm-hmm. is a big piece of the puzzle for the conservatives in the coming weeks and months. And also, as the senior liberal said to me, said that the secret to Trudeau's first victory was just in his words, quote, to shut the F up and to let a tired government, in a sense, uh, bring about the inevitable. So it is interesting how the conservatives and this leader, Pierre Polyev, seem to want to continue to kind of, at times, feed the beast. And I just don't get it. I don't, I don't think I don't understand the rationale, it, you know, it was maybe partly evidenced in his, his kind of approach to the leadership campaign. It's not simply winning, it's, it's complete uh, annihilation. It's pounding the rubble is what is seen as success. And yeah, maybe in a liberal, in a conservative leadership, that is an outcome you can go for when your biggest candidate is a former liberal Um your biggest rival is a former liberal, you know, premier who looks <laughs> about 35 years out of date, but don't underestimate, you know, what a national election is like. And frankly, an unfriendly media <laughs> and uh, women voters who are not too keen on you. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. There's real challenges there. And this kind of, uh, I don't know, this, this reflex to, to kind of stoke the base, uh, I think it's unnecessary. And I think it's the advice should just be shut the, you know, what up and follow a beautiful natural process, like a sun, like a gorgeous sunset <laughs> in the evening. Just watch it. Enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's something to that, that Pierre Polyev's strength and weakness are two sides of the same coin. He he wants to win every day mm-hmm. as opposed to winning the war. And I think hopefully what we're seeing, you know, hopefully for conservatives, what we're see, what you're seeing from him in, in recent months is something of an adjustment um in the way he's presenting himself and presenting his ideas. And that yeah, may... the weft, you know, the weft stuff coughing. I don't know. I don't know. Fair. Um, but I, I think he has found kind of magic on the housing issue. Um, mm-hmm. and he, he, he knows that brief well. And, um, and I, not, I guess the, the, to go full circle, nothing we've heard this week is going to in any way kind yeah. of minimize the policy strength that he has on that file. And I suspect we'll, we'll hear only more about it, um, as parliament gets set to return next month. 100%. Okay. Great show, Sean. We will uh, connect with you next week. Uh, Look forward to doing it all again. Enjoy your last weekend of August, guys. We're going to be taping this show next on September 1st. Yikes. 
Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.